Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1. Glitches here and there, but I tell you what, this place already feels like home, doesn't it? It's good being here. It's good to be here. Exodus chapter 1, we're diving back into this book. We're, uh, we're jumping back into Exodus after taking a week off last week. We've covered verses 1 through 8 of this book so far. We've gone through 1 through 8, but really those verses kind of just serve as a reminder of what we need to know coming out of the book of Genesis. If you remember, we said that those first eight verses are kind of prologue. They just serve to point us back to Genesis and say, Exodus is set in a context, it's set in a place, and here's the context. It's the book of Genesis. And, uh, and so we looked at Abraham, and we looked at Joseph, and we considered how God was working in their midst in ways that they would not anticipate, that they would have not uh, chosen, but that's how God has, has decided to work in their midst. Ways like uh, what we will see today and what we're picking up on in the book of Exodus is how God's people are now bound in slavery in a foreign land, which sounds terrible, but that's entirely God's work. That's Him at work and keeping a promise. And we'll look more at that shortly as we, as we really start to dive in and sink our teeth into this great uh, book. I'm curious, does anyone here like regularly watch the local news? Just show of hands, regularly watch the local news. Um, I, I've gotten to where I pretty regularly watch the local news. I used to think that was for old people. Um, and now I think that well, the truth is, I think I'm joining the ranks of the old people. So, because I'm starting to watch the, the local news now, and, and uh, I'm not sure what the correlation is there. I always thought that was for old people, and apparently I now, I now am. But um, the, the local news is a little different than watching the national news. National news is always hung up on uh, the political stuff and what's going on there. That seems to be the only type of news that they like to report, but the, the local news, you get a little bit of a different flavor, a different type of reporting. And here in Knoxville, I think we have a pretty solid lineup for our local uh, newscasters and stations. Uh, I'm sure you all have your favorites, and you would be happy to, uh, to jump on what your favorites are, but there's something about the, the local news that's universal all over the country, not just in Knoxville, but uh, everywhere. I've lived in Louisville, which would be a larger market. I've lived in Johnson City, which would be a smaller market. Uh, but it's true even here with our local news stations, is that th the local news have the unique ability to find the absolute worst spokesperson to represent uh, our area. It, it's, it's incredible how they can do that. They, they can find, it's like needle in a haystack, it's probably not that hard actually, but it, it's, it's, they will find the worst representative for East Tennessee to put forward. And this is true, like I said, with all local news stations. This must be a journalism class that is taught in college on how to find the woman in her nightgown or how to find the guy without his shirt on to, to interview. Uh, you throw, on, uh, throw in a, a little bit of redneck slang and a cuss word or two and you've got all you need for a good local news interview. That's, that's how they do it. I don't understand, but that's what, that's what they do. And I'm not saying that these are bad people that they get to interview. These people, I'm sure, are good people. It's just not always the best representative that we want to put forward for East Tennessee to say, this is who we are. They, they, they seem, seem to be able to get maybe the worst representative of who we are to get in there. Uh, I, I know if I were trying to sell real estate in the area, one advice I would give people is don't watch the local news because you, you might think that that is what, what everybody is like around here. So... I used to follow a blog called Jesus Needs New PR. 
I don't know what happened to it. I think it kind of it disappeared. I barely remember what all they posted. But I used to think that the website was a fantastic name. It always caught my attention. Because too often I felt like the spokespeople for Jesus that, that were, were, were dubbed as the ones that were the go-to spokespeople uh, in our culture weren't always the ones that represented us as Christians well. Folks on the news that would come across as hateful or angry as uh, self-righteous, quoting people that, uh, that maybe what they're saying are technically true, but in a way that is far from winsome and far from speaking the truth in love, which is what we are called to do. And so uh, the, the truth can, you know, local news can kind of do that. And then uh, whenever, whenever people go to, to find spokespeople for, uh, for our faith, that doesn't always line up the way that it works. And so this idea of Jesus needs new PR, I kind of uh, identified with. And, but I will say this, though, when I read and I preach through the Bible, I kind of feel for those local reporters just a little bit. Sometimes you have to work with the material that you've been given, and that's just the way that it is. And as I've taught through various books over the past few years, Romans, Philippians, Acts, as we've gone through these, there are themes that continually come up that just aren't what we're going to put on the, uh, the brochure for Christianity. They're not the things that we want to put up and say, hey, come to Jesus because this is what life is going to look like. Too often, you, you really are, are just given those those things and that's what you got to deal with they're not immediately marketable things they won't sell many books they won't gain many followers as a platform on instagram or twitter and i'll show you what i mean here as we get into the book of exodus as we as we look at this and you'll start to see what i'm talking about that there's this theme that that just keeps coming up all throughout scripture where what we're taught is not something that you just kind of put out there and say, hey, come to Jesus, because all is great. So look with me in verse 8. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. And before we start reading this, I want to tell you, I'm going to be preaching most of the book of Exodus out of a different translation than what I've been doing before. If you've bought an ESV so that you could read along, sorry. Um, we'll be using the HCSB translation. It's not a big deal. I love the ESV. We, we will probably go back to it some. Uh, during this series, and whenever we're done with Exodus, I anticipate going right back to the ESV. But the HCSB does some different things with the names of God that I think will be helpful for us as we get further along uh, in this book. So just a heads up if you're reading along in the ESV and you realize that it doesn't exactly uh, read the same. Uh, But if you have the ESV, it's great. Keep it. Keep rolling with it. This is just for this series that we're making a little bit of a a transition. So verse 8. A new king who had not known Joseph came to power in Egypt. He said to his people, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and powerful than we are. Let us deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And if war breaks out, they may join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramesses as supply cities for Pharaoh. But the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work. They ruthlessly imposed all this work on them. We'll stop there. That sounds miserable. But if you'll remember, we looked at If you remember what we looked at with Abraham and God's promise to him, 
part of God's promise was you're going to have all kinds of descendants, more numerous than the stars, more numerous than the sand on the shore. You're going to have this. You'll be blessed in that way. And that is all true. This is what it looks like when God chooses to bless. Now, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us in our categories, because essentially what God has said is, so here you go, Abraham. Here's what I promise. Here's your people. But then you look at this description that Moses gives to us. The Egyptian people dealt shrewdly. The Egyptian king dealt shrewdly. They worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter. And again, it says they ruthlessly imposed work. He's making a point that the work was hard, that there was a hard person over them that was pushing them, that made them do forced labor. Ruthless is not a word that you use lightly. It sounds awful. And this is God coming through on his promise. It's not exactly something we're going to put out on our new marquee, right? Come to, come to God and work ruthlessly. Have a slave driver over top of you. That's what it means to be blessed. That's not how we want to do that. But here's one of the things that you need to get real comfortable, comfortable with if you're going to call yourself a follower of Jesus. If you're going to give your life over to God. It will often be very difficult to discern between a blessing and a curse. And in fact, you probably, in most times in your life, will have a hard time knowing until you look back in reverse, being able to discern the two, a blessing and a curse. Many, many times the things we think are our ultimate curse, the clear evidence that God has forgotten us, are really, in time, our most profound blessings and evidence that God is, in fact, at work in our lives. But make no mistake about it, when you are going through it, it will not feel like it. It will feel like a miserable curse. So what do we do in the face of this kind of thing? I mean, you've got this story of God saying, I will bless you and your people, Abraham, and then this is what it looks like. Slavery. Hard labor in captivity to these people that are now over you. How do we respond to that? What, what do we do in the face of this kind of thing? Well, we've got two options. We can give God better PR. We open up the spin zone, and we change things like this that we see in the Bible. We start to kind of soften them a little bit. We start to kind of gloss over them. We dismiss them. We try to make them say something else. We turn the Bible into a manual for getting rich, for getting comfortable, and for getting everything that we've ever wanted. The Bible becomes the guide to the American dream. That's much better PR. That sells a whole lot better. You can put that on a marquee. You can put that on a brochure, and people will buy into that. So that's one option. And there are thousands of people doing this all over the globe. Sometimes it looks like a guy in a really nice suit preaching in a basketball arena. Sometimes it looks like a woman writing a book about how we're all children of the king and how God wouldn't want his princesses to suffer. Sometimes it's a friend telling another friend that he's leaving his wife because God wants him to be happy and he'll only be happy with another woman. There's a thousand different ways that we do this. There's a thousand different ways that we give better PR. But the message is always the same. 
What God wants is for you to smile, to be happy, to skip along the beach with all your kids, with all your money, with just the right spouse and a great body. That's what God wants for you. That will sell the brochure. That will get the Instagram post, hashtag blessed. That is exactly what it is. That gets a platform. But Jesus doesn't need or want that kind of PR. He's content letting his message stand just as it was given. Even in the Gospels, if you go and you look at Jesus, you see that he's not particularly interested in new PR or getting a new spin to his message. In John chapter 6, Jesus had just fed the 5,000. That's a pretty big miracle. It was gaining him a lot of attention, a lot of following. People were interested. He was building his brand. He was building his platform, and he had this captive audience of satisfied, satisfied people. And what does he do? He comes to them, and he gives a speech that says, if you really want to be satisfied, you'll eat my flesh, and you'll drink my blood. That is not the kind of message you give if you want people to start following you more. You don't give that kind of message if you're worried about your PR, but that's exactly what Jesus does. Jesus gives that kind of message because he's got one message that he's trying to get across, and it's not going to line up with the American dream. It's not going to line up with you being comfortable, happy, and perfectly content. And he's totally okay with that. We understand what he meant by that. But whoever is advising Jesus whenever he says, eat my flesh and drink my blood, whoever's advising him needs to tell him, don't put that on Twitter, Jesus. That's not going to help you get a better following. It's killing your momentum. But Jesus wasn't worried about his PR. Some of you are in the midst of something you were convinced would be a blessing. But it's hard for you to ever even imagine that's what it would be now. It feels more like a curse. Maybe it's a marriage that's making you absolutely miserable. Maybe the child that you always prayed for, and now you find that having a child is way harder than you ever imagined that it would be, and being a parent is more consuming than you ever imagined it would be, and you hear everybody else talking about all the joy in being a parent, and you're miserable. It's okay to say that. I know that sounds like, oh gosh, I can't talk that way about my kids. But the reality is that, that many of you feel that sometimes. And it's okay to say that out loud, to admit that being a parent isn't all that you thought it would be. It's okay to admit that your spouse isn't all that they're supposed to be. For some of you, there's a mountain of debt that consumes you for a degree that you hang on your wall that you're not even able to use. It was supposed to be a blessing. Now it feels like a curse. We could go on for days listing how this plays out for us over and over and over. The job you prayed to get becomes the miserable circumstance that you have to endure every day with a terrible boss. On and on we could go. But the bottom line is this. You need to know that God is always at work, even when you don't see it, even when you don't believe it, even when you don't trust Him. He is always at work. And in those moments when you don't see it, and when you, you can't get your mind around how you can trust Him in the midst of this pain, even in those moments, it's okay to have questions and to have doubts. You think Israel didn't cry out to God and ask where God was? I promise you they did. Hard labor, in the sun, miserable. 
family members dying in the midst of the labor, watching your best friend be whipped and beaten because they weren't working hard enough. You think they're not saying, God, I thought you were on our side. I thought you were supposed to bless us. This doesn't feel like a blessing. Don't be afraid to put that out there, to ask those questions. But know that he is there and he is at work. And there'll come a day when you'll be able to see how he was there the whole time. Even in the darkest, loneliest, and most painful moments. We'll see how things move from bad to worse for the Hebrews. Look in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other was Pua, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, observe them as they deliver. If the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. Things go from bad to worse real quick. So now not only are the, the, the Israelites facing, are the, are the Hebrews facing this this, this mountain in front of them of, of pain and suffering under labor, they're now also facing, standing in the face of out-and-out out genocide. Oh man, that is a dark place. It doesn't get much darker than where we are right here in verse 15 and verse 16. It is a hard place to even imagine God is there. As I read this text, I wish this text felt far removed and like something we could never see again today. But just this week, we watched in horror and shame as the New York State House erupted like it was New Year's Eve in Times Square when politicians voted to make it legal to murder their children in the womb right up until, in some, in, in, and even in some cases, after birth. They could do this for any reason. If you haven't seen this on your social media, it is sickening to watch. I would love to say that this is, this is so long ago, we would never say something like this now. That Pharaoh's command here is, is, is far removed, and we don't have to face this kind of thing now, but we see it play out in our social media just this week. Much like Pharaoh went after the helpless, voiceless children to try and gain his power, the current debate over the legality of abortion has put unborn children as nothing more than a political pawn in the never-ending power struggle of politics. Satan will always, always go after the most vulnerable and the easiest targets with his wickedness. The worst thing that could have happened to the discussion around abortion is that it became a primary, primarily political issue. Because when it becomes a political issue, when that happens, unfortunately, people today in our culture will cling to their political parties much harder than they will cling to their own religion. More than their faith. They will cling to their political party in, in, in spite of reason, logic, or morality. They are more than willing to toss all of that out in order to maintain their political power. Listen, if we're ever going to win the abortion debate, if we as Christians are ever going to make an impact on our culture when we talk about abortion, 
We have to be able to give a voice to the voiceless, and we must make the discussion about abortion a moral one, not a political one. So long as as it is a political one, and you think I'm up here making a point about the Republican Party right now, we will never win that fight. It is not primarily a political issue. It's not even secondary. It, the, 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 the comparison between the two, it is a moral issue. It is an issue that we cannot hedge on. It is one we cannot shrink back from. And what we can see from the book of Exodus is that Satan has always used this tactic, always gone after the voiceless, and he always will, regardless of what political party is in charge. Abortion cannot be a political pawn for politicians. It must be something where where Christians stand up and say, we must protect life. We must come alongside people whenever they give birth and help them nurse life. It cannot be a political issue. Our job must be to fight back in the face of this culture that views babies as an inconvenience or as a source of power. I want to read verse 17 here and see what the midwives did in the face of this attempt from Pharaoh. Verse 17. The Hebrew midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. So the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, The Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very numerous. Since the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Pharaoh then commanded all his people, You must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile, but let every daughter live. What a powerful testimony from these Hebrew midwives. They refused to be a part of a power play towards genocide of these children. Instead, they made sure that they helped these women in the face of the most powerful man they would ever know. Remember this, there is no police force, there is no Supreme Court, there is no Congress protecting them, there is no Constitution, there is no law. The king of Egypt was absolutely sovereign. He could do whatever he wanted. He could have had these women killed like that. He could have had these women and their friends and their associates and their families thrown into the Nile right along with the babies. And they stood in the face of that and they said, no, we will not do this. We will protect these babies. He could have done whatever he wanted. But these women knew that whatever the king of Egypt could do, he wasn't the sovereign king over everything. God is the ultimate judge, the ultimate ruler, and the ultimate authority. And they feared him more than they feared Pharaoh. What a testimony. What a story. You want to talk about pushing back against the darkness. And that's how you do it. This is why we as a church support Life Outreach Center here. This is why we give to them annually as part of our missions budget. This is why many of you have volunteered to help out there with clothing, with donations, and so much more. I encourage you to support Life Outreach Center with your time, with your money. Go be invested. Go be a counselor. Go, go figure out how you can sit in one of those rooms with a, with a mom who's considering an abortion, who, who gets an ultrasound for the first time and sees the heartbeat. Go push back against the darkness. 
those women at the Life Outreach Center are on the front lines of this battle, saving lives and helping save the women that come in there with no place to go. They are very much like the Hebrew midwives, standing in the face of a culture that very much wishes they were not there. Yet they refuse to let the culture of death expand its power, its financially lucrative practices, without putting forth the good news of Jesus Christ. They, like these midwives, are heroes. It's a hard text to read. It's a dark text to read. But what happened in the book of Exodus is still happening today. Maybe it's clouded in something different. Maybe it's legal. Legal doesn't mean moral. But getting a, so let's just get away from this abortion talk for just a minute. Getting away from genocide issues that are brought up here. What, what do we do with this? What, what do we do when we're handed a text like this? How are we just supposed to walk away into our Sunday afternoons after reading such a dark text? Slavery and genocide juxtapose right next to each other. And this is in the context of God's blessing. What do we do with that? Is that what we put on our Facebook posts as a church? Come to Jesus. He'll make you miserable and give you ruthless taskmasters. But it's all for your good. Don't worry. It doesn't work real well. It doesn't sell much. It's not going to be the best strategy for our church growth. But what if we know the fuller picture? That in the midst of darkness and pain, there's still blessing to be found. Did you catch there how God blessed the midwives for their stance? Did you see that? For their refusal to bow to the edict from Pharaoh, God gives them a family. He gives them babies. I can't help but smile when I read that. The thing Pharaoh wanted to destroy the most is the thing that God gives to these faithful women. In the midst of this pain, of this darkness, there's blessing. We shouldn't be scared or try to wish away passages like this when we come across them. The reality is that God has had a plan from the beginning. And that God is always working this plan out. In this plan, the Hebrews suffered mightily for decades and decades, but he had a plan. Did you see in verse 12, we read by it pretty quick, did you see that in verse 12, what it said? It said, but the more they oppressed them, the more they multiplied. And they spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The more they oppressed, the stronger they got. The harder Pharaoh pushed, the more they grew. The darker it got, the brighter the light was shining. That is our hope. If you're here and you're in the midst of something that feels like a curse, that feels like God has checked out, that feels like God is, maybe he's not even checked out, that he's actively pursuing against you. There's always hope. The harder we are pressed, the more we are refined. The darker things become, the brighter the light of Christ shines in the darkness. God has a plan that he is working in your life. He is not asleep at the wheel. He has not left you alone. He has not given up on you. That thing that is the source of pain now may just become the source of your strength in days to come. 
You don't have to know how it's going to work out. You don't have to know where it's going to go. And you don't have to pretend that all is well. It's, it's fine to say, this stinks. I hate this. This is miserable. I just want to get through this. I just want it to be over. It's fine to say that. It's fine to say, I don't see God in this. It's fine to say, I don't know where he is. It's fine to say, I feel like he's pushing against me. Read the Psalms. David says it over and over and over again. But then David also comes back and he says, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. Put your trust in him. You need to know that you have not been forgotten. And you say, well, how do you know? You don't know what I've done. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm forgotten because I deserve to be forgotten. How do you know I'm not forgotten? You don't know how bad it is for me. There's, there's no way I'm going to get out of this one. It's miserable. The reason I know is because of Jesus. Because Jesus came. Because we were left and forgotten in our sin, which we should have been. We were enemies to God. We weren't just like, out there and God said oh yeah I'll go get them we were enemies fighting against God but he sent his son and he redeemed us we are not abandoned and left alone we were given a savior whose blood intercedes for us who knows the loneliness you feel and even deeper who knows the pain you're enduring and even deeper and his faithfulness to God and to you is all that you need to know that God is at work. And you will know him better in the days and the weeks and the years ahead. Just keep your eyes fixed on him. God doesn't need new PR when it comes to his word. We don't need to twist it. We don't need to pretend it doesn't say what it says. We don't need to hide from the ugly, painful truths that are there. Because if we do that, then what that says to you whenever you're going through that pain and that suffering and that hard place is, wait a minute, that didn't happen in the Bible. I must be left alone here because that didn't happen to the people in the Bible. But it did. There's nothing more real than the pages of Scripture to speak into that kind of stuff. Don't be afraid. Don't feel abandoned. Know that Christ is there. Know that he has endured. He's endured what you've gone through and he is there to help you endure now. He is interceding on your behalf. This is what it means to follow Christ. Not that you get a great Instagram post about how blessed your life is. You may. Not that you get a great a great Instagram post to put out there about this wonderful little family that you've got and this wonderful little vacation you got to take and this big house that you've got and this wonderful car. You may get those things. You know, the funny thing is, though, whenever it starts talk, we start talking about the material side of things, Scripture often looks at that not as a blessing but a curse. The things that we use to define blessings, Scripture often looks at those to define a curse. We have to know what Christ is doing. What he's doing is he is shaping us into him. He is changing us, molding us, moving us into him. And anything that he does to push us in that direction, anything that he does to move us and make us more like him is a blessing. And I don't say that 
in any way to gloss over or minimize pain. I say that to tell you that there's a purpose and there's a person behind it. And there will be an end to it. And there will be a day that you celebrate. And that you see Christ. And that you know Christ in ways you've never known him before. So as a church family, what we want to do is we want to do what the Hebrew midwives have done. What the Egyptian people have done. Unite around each other as we go through this. You don't have to endure any of it alone. You don't have to endure any of this alone. The, the body of Christ is, is made in such a way so that we can walk together in these things, so that we can pursue together in these things, so that when it's time for us to, to pursue Christ, we don't say, here I go, and you're all by yourself on, on some road that you're running down, but instead you have an army of people with you. And you have Hebrew midwives next to you that are saying, you can do this. I'm right here with you. This is what it means to be a Christian. To follow Christ. To know him more. To follow Christ with brothers and sisters next to you. That we can all know Christ more and share in those sufferings. And become more like him. Will you pray with me? Father, we read such a dark text in Scripture, and even as we read this, genocide and slavery, it's hard, to, it's hard to read without feeling the weight and the emotion that they must have felt. Father, some of us know that emotion well. Some of us know that emotion well right now in this room. I pray that you would comfort them. That even in the words of your Scripture, you would give them hope this morning. You would let them know that you are right there. They do not have to grasp aimlessly looking for you. But you are right there. May you be present in the midst of this. Whether that be through your people, the presence of your spirit, the words we sing, the words we pray. Father, will you just be present? Give someone in her hope this morning that you've not left them or abandoned them. Give all of us hope in here this morning that when that day comes, you will be right there. Working for our good. Making us more like you. It's in Christ's name we pray.